That's incredible, Anthony. Thank God for his work. You know, R.C. Sproul has said many times the heart of Reformation theology is regeneration precedes faith. Uh, you know, not just Roman Catholics, but all religions, apart from Christ, Christians, Protestant Christianity affirm that faith precedes regeneration, that our salvation is our choice, our work, that God responds to us. Scripture alone says, no, salvation is all of God. He's the author and perfecter. So for you to see that in the midst of pursuing uh, the priesthood, the midst of being mired in uh, just Roman Catholic theology is really a tremendous work of God's grace. All glory and honor go to Christ. And let us continue to uphold the power of the gospel, that it's not the preacher, it's not the messenger, it's not how well we articulate this gospel, it's just... Like how we defend the line, we let it out of its cage. The gospel as well. We just let the gospel go forth. And as Luther said, one little word shall fell him, the great enemy. One little word, a hammer that breaks a rock, a fire uh, that burns a person's heart will save a person. Romans 1.16, it's a dynamite. And that word that worked in uh, Anthony's heart is continued to work today and Let's just continue to honor the gospel in that way. Thank God for you, brother. Look forward to just uh, applying, to seeing how you apply your discipline and commitment, not to the Roman Catholic Church, but to Christ Church here, and to sound theology and to the scriptures. And uh, look forward to seeing um, the fruits of salvation being produced in your life. Well, let's go to the Lord. I think it's just appropriate to go to the Lord and pray for our brother. God, we thank you for Anthony. We thank you that you knew him before he was even created, before he was even born. You knew him by name. And Lord, you orchestrated every event of his life to bring him to a point where he saw the the bankruptcy, the emptiness, the sheer folly of man-made religion. That though they seek to establish their righteousness before a holy God, it is completely futile. We thank you for opening Anthony's eyes to see that. We know that with man that is impossible. Only the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ can accomplish this and you did it all. Lord, you saved him, you rescued him, you redeemed him, you purchased him. And for him to come this morning and to give this testimony to all of us here, to those who so love the word, so consider the word um, dear, near and dear to us, we thank you for encouraging us through his testimony and we pray that you would continue to build him up as a man of God. He would immerse himself in the scriptures, the cutting straight the word of God so that by him and through him, many more who are lost in that whole false system, that man-made system, be rescued by the word of Christ. All to your glory. We thank you and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that was a great shift in gear, you know. Thanks, Anthony, uh, for doing a good job at following up with that great slideshow from the children's ministry. We thank you for uh, honoring the fathers and fathers-to-be with that slideshow. It's my theory that the children's ministry knows more about Cornerstone members than anyone else or any other group in the church. They hear our kids talking, and I'm afraid what they hear, especially from Elizabeth. So when Elizabeth was up there, I was afraid of what she might say, but... <laughs> At least she didn't say I was a national basketball player. Sit on the couch and watch TV or, or my video games or something. Praise God. Yeah. Good job, Elizabeth. Well, we kind of shifted the, um, you know, the position of the pulpit here. It's not because I wanted any higher place in the church or anything. I'm not going to wear a robe next week or anything. It's really um, for the purpose of just um, proclamation of the word. Uh, I think definitely the church has grown in size. When we're about 40, 50 people, I could pretty much sit down and preach, and that was fine. As the church has grown, you know, got a riser so that I could see the people that I'm preaching to, and so that you could see me. I think uh, seeing a preacher helps you to understand the word I'm, uh, in, a, in a clearer, better way. With the growth of the church, um, felt the need to even just come up here um, so that the word 
would be better understood. It's not for me at all. If it was up to me, I'd be in a corner speaking into a mic for you guys to hear. Um, but it's for the, for, uh, the Word of God to be uh, better proclaimed and better understood. Well, today is Father's Day. No doubt that many of you are thinking about dads, or all of you are thinking about dads, or should be thinking about dads, and we'll be spending this afternoon um, talking or having meals with, with dad, your dads. Um, thought about my dad a lot this week. It's a bittersweet you know, uh, mixture of emotions, just a lot of uh, thanksgiving and gratitude to God for my dad. But you know, having lost him a few months ago, just a um, greater sense of missing him during this time. You know, my relationship with my dad changed throughout my life. Uh, when I was, you know, younger, it was like the video, I just play with dad. He brings money home, you know. He, food is why, you know, he's my daddy. And, and he teaches me how to play baseball or tennis. And then when my junior high years, you know, it was a little more, a little distant. My high school years, very distant. Um, and in college and so on. My last seven years of my, my dad's life, my relationship with my dad improved just dramatically, like our relationship was really, really sweet, really um, intimate, heart-to-heart, man-to-man talks continually, and I thank God for those uh, seven years. Um, during my high school years, you know, if you knew me, you would, if you were to ask me about my dad, you would sense that I had no small amount of fear of my dad, for my dad, that I was afraid of my dad. My friends kind of understood this. They kind of understood why. If you knew my dad, he was a big, burly guy, very dark, very small eyes, you know. Very, very bad temper. He's Korean, of course, so he just, when he just lost his temper, I mean, it was just, you know, it was like Jurassic Park, you know, <laughs> like just a big dinosaur. He would yell, and the house would shake. So people think I preach loudly. No, nothing compared to my dad. If my dad was a preacher, man, you just... You know, we don't, need a, we don't need a sound system for my dad to preach. Well, my friends, especially one friend, a particular friend, got a raw experience with my dad and experienced firsthand why my dad was so scary. One day, I think it was my so- a junior in high school, I brought him over to my house, and uh, it was in my room, I don't know, doing something. And I went down in the garage for a few minutes to do something, I don't remember what. <clears throat> well, during that time, my dad got angry something or someone, and he was just, he lost his temper, and he walked into my room, and he saw my friend there, and he said, who are you? And my friend's like, you know, I'm like, Chase's friend, this is my house, get out of my house, and my dad kicked my friend out of my house, and I come back up, and I'm like, dad, where's my friend? I don't want him here, I kicked him out, I go, dad, where is he? I don't know. Dad, I drove him here. He doesn't even live in this city. So I go outside the house. I go looking for him. And he's at the corner of the block, almost in tears. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm going home. How are you going to go home? I drove you here. I don't care. I'm out of here. <laughs> Last thing I want to do is see your dad again. No, come back in. It's okay. I'm going to get my key. No, I'll wait for you outside. And uh, I drove him home. So my view of my dad, my experience with my dad was like that. My friends got a sense of just how scary my dad can be. I think our perception of, our, our, of people is greatly affected by how their sons view them. I just like the video. All right? who, are, who are these men of our church? Who are the fathers of our church? Let's ask, let's ask their children. Let's ask what they think about their dads. And you get a, maybe, a, maybe a real insight who they are really like at home. Um, well, same thing with our Father in Heaven. Right? What is He like? What attribute, what characteristic of God the Father stand out? If we were to ask Jesus Christ, God's Son, what would He say about the Father, about the Father in Heaven? Right? I think we find... The answer in Luke 15. In Luke chapter 15, we discover our Lord's view of the Father. Our Lord 
invited and welcomed sinners. Just a broad term encompassing all the irreligious people, non-worshippers of God in the world, prostitutes, drunkards, right? Just the immoral, ungodly men and women of that generation and tax collectors, the lowest of lows, the betrayers of the nation of Israel. What was our Lord's response to such people in the world? Those who were morally loose, maybe even homosexuals, who are flaunting their sinfulness. What was our Lord's interactions with them? We discovered throughout the Gospels that He invited them. He welcomed them. He loved to be in their midst. And yes, it is because Jesus loved them. But Luke 15 tells us, more importantly, he welcomed them because his father welcomes them. Because his father loves them. Isn't that amazing? Um, and Thomas Watson, in his book, The Body of Divinity, says, in his introduction about the attributes of God, the first attribute that he highlights is the, infinite, the infinity of God the limitlessness of God, the eternal nature of God, the greatness of God. And the first category under his infinity is his infinite mercy. That our God is a merciful God. Our God is a God who is full of mercy. And that is depicted in Luke 15. Our God is infinite and he is infinitely merciful. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. When's the last time you thought about God the Father and considered His character, His attribute of mercy? That He is infinitely merciful. The three parables, particularly the last one, highlights the mercy of God. Jesus reveals God's heart. God's heart of mercy towards sinners. Through the prodigal son, we find out, we discover God's view of us. Because all of us here, we're um, prodigal sons. That's us. You know, we want to maybe identify with heroes in every story. But as we look at the Bible, we're not the heroes. We're the the enemy. We're the evil ones. We're the sinners. And in this parable, we must identify with the prodigal son because he is us. And we get an insight of the Father's view of us that when he sees us, he sees us not with eyes of anger, wrath, and condemnation. He sees us with eyes of mercy. And also, our Lord reveals God's view of everyone who is seeking to establish their own righteousness. We see God's view towards those who are proud, who are seeking to establish uh, their own way to God, seeking to uh, boast their own works. And you know what God's view of them is as well? It's also mercy, it's also benevolent. God will judge them in the future. But when Christ was on the earth towards the Pharisees, He extended God's invitation for them to repent and trust in Christ. And even today, if you are here and you're seeking to trust in your own righteousness, your own works of the law, trust in yourself, God wants to see His heart towards you. He wants to be merciful. He is merciful. He desires for you to see, repent, and turn to Him in humility. Let's go to Luke 15. And study this chapter with that mind frame. The infinite mercy of God the Father. We will look at, ultimately, the final parable. The parable of the merciful father, the prodigal son, and the proud son. But before we get there, I want to deal with the whole entire chapter. 
the full impact of the third parable can only be grasped in light of the setting, the historical setting in the first two parables. We need to understand the historical context in which Christ, our Lord, gave this parable. And to that end, we need to go back to Luke 14, 26. Our Lord just concluded His teachings, teaching on discipleship. And He concludes with a radical call to all His hearers. Verse 26, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a radical call to follow Christ and to love him above all. That's what separates Christian fathers from non-Christian fathers. All fathers love their children, even non-Christian fathers. But what sets us apart as Christian fathers is that we hate our children. Right? We hate them. In light of Christ, because of Luke 14, 26, we love Christ more, even more than our children. Husbands and wives, Christian husbands, all husbands are called to love their wives, but Christian wives are set apart in that we hate our wives. We hate them. We are to love Christ more. And all Christian wives, they, they are to hate right, their husbands because they love Christ more. What a radical call to discipleship. Anyone who does not carry his cross, understanding just a death sentence, willingness to die for Christ, and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. He taught everyone gathered around him his standards for following him. And even after our Lord's strong words about the cost of discipleship, you would think after such a strong declaration, everyone would flee and run away and reject Christ you would think the 12 disciples would th- are thinking, oh, it's over now. All right, there goes our Lord's ministry. There goes our ministry, our work. Who's going to follow Him now? After such strong um, declaration of His standards, it's amazing. Many were coming to hear Christ. Many were pursuing Christ all the more. And look at the kinds of people. Luke 15:1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. So those who are humble in heart are not um, pushed away, are not dissuaded, are not repelled by Christ's call to discipleship. Those who are humble in heart, those who understand the burden of sin and the prospect of standing before a thrice holy God and sins remaining, humble hearts melt like butter and are attracted towards Christ. This was such a common sight of Christ being with sinners that the Pharisees labeled him. One of his titles was a friend of sinners. Because our Lord, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the scribes and the Sadducees, he welcomed sinners. If a sinner invited him to his home for dinner, he was there. Right? If a sinner wanted to talk to him, sit near him, touch him, he welcomed it. He loved associating with those who were in the eyes of the religious world at that time, the, the outcasts, the unwanted, the unloved by God. He was often persecuted for his compassion and love for those who were lowly, who were considered impure and sinful. And again, it is because Christ loved them, but as this parable will show, it is more because God the Father loved them, and God the Father is a merciful God, wanting them to be with him. Recall Luke chapter 7. I don't need to turn there, but the story of a woman who lived a sinful life and our Lord is seated there and um, she comes behind Him with an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind Him, she was weeping. She began to wet His feet with her tears and she sits down and it's like a, like a you're seated on on cushions on the floor so you're seated sideways the lady is seated next to him by his feet and she is anointing his feet with oil and her tears and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and and the Pharisees what's their response? They, they respond by saying if this man was a prophet he would know what kind of woman she is 
and she would, he would rebuke her and tell her to go away. What kind of woman is she? She's a prostitute. She's an immoral woman. She's a loose woman, known by the whole community. You are a man of God. You are a prophet of God. And you're associating with such a woman. He cannot be from God. And our Lord knows their thoughts and rebukes them by asking Peter a question. Peter, let me ask you a question. Who would be more thankful? A man who has his debt of 500 denarii canceled or a man who had 50 denarii canceled? And Peter doesn't understand what's going on. What kind of question is that, Lord? Like, a simple math. Weren't you at school when they taught simple, you know, mathematics? Of course, the man who had this debt of 500 denarii would be more thankful, more grateful. Right? And our Lord was saying, that is why this woman is so thankful to me and so thankful to God. In Luke 19, as he was passing through Jericho, Zacchaeus, a chief tax gatherer, this guy was the one who was running the scam, right, of overtaxing uh, citizens of Israel so that he might get a cut after the Romans. And he was getting a cut from all those who were uh, uh, getting that, their money from the citizens of Israel. He was the betrayer of all betrayers. He was a short man. He was, wanted to see Jesus. He was climbing. It was on a, uh, a tree. And when the Lord saw him, the Lord said, Come down, Zacchaeus. Today I must stay at your house. When the Pharisees heard that, they grumbled to one another. He has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. So repeatedly our Lord loved sinners and gravitated towards them and associated with them. And here is our Lord again, chapter 15, verse 1. Teaching and preaching, ministering, but also dining with tax collectors and sinners. And again, look at the response of the Pharisees and scribes. They were again grumbling specifically about the fact that he received sinners and he even ate with them. The question we've got to ask is, why did this so offend the Pharisees and scribes? Why did Jesus accepting sinners cause them to grumble? The answer is found in the third parable, but we need to navigate through the first two to set up the third so let's go through the three parables. And they, each of them are, in a way, a response to the Pharisees grumbling. They're, they're offended. They're provoked to anger. They're blaming Jesus. They're angry at Him. And our Lord is answering them by way of these three parables. Let's go to the first one, verse 3. He told them a parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not lead the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Among you, who would not do this? And when he has found it, what man among you would not lay it on his shoulders and rejoice? And when he comes home, he would call together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Who among us wouldn't do this? I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The picture is of a shepherd who is trying to account for all his sheep, finds that one is missing. Rhetorical question, who would not leave 99 to search for the one that is lost? Everyone would. And after a diligent search, would they not rejoice greatly at finding the one lost sheep? Would they not tenderly put the sheep on his shoulders, lovingly carry it back to the fold? And would not he call his friends to rejoice because he found the sheep that was lost? So why are you guys angry? Why are you upset? Why are you not rejoicing with me? For these men and women were the ones that were lost. And God has found them. They're coming back into the fold. Why are you upset? Then he goes on to the second parable of the coin. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, a silver coin is a day's wage. 
does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why are you so upset when there is joy in heaven? The angels are praising God. There is a celebration in the heavenly throne. There's exaltation and praise occurring right now because of sinners repenting. And why are you so sour-faced? It's logical. It's reasonable. It makes sense. What is wrong with you? The shepherd and the woman. These two parables teach the same and simple truth. If a shepherd rejoices over finding a sheep. And if a woman rejoices because she found a lost coin, how much more, as you say you're a worshiper of God, the Pharisees, the separate ones, dedicated to God, how much more should you be thanking and praising God and filled with joy because we're not rescuing sheep here. We're not finding money. God is recovering people who are much more valuable than animals or money and yet instead of being filled with joy you're filled with anger you're upset you're stumbling so he sets them up and then he lays on them the final culminating parable right and so our Lord is a masterful teacher he's just setting them up setting them up and he's going, he goes for the knockout punch he gives them the parable of the father and two sons. And uh, the context tells us this. The main character is not the father. The main character is not the prodigal son. We want to identify with the prodigal son because like, we look at our testimony and we say, that's me, right? Maybe not some of you, but <laughs> at least for me, that was me, right? Lived a sinful life and hit rock bottom and God saved me. Um, but we don't really identify, even though maybe we, we ought to, with the older son. But the main character of this story is the older son because he's not speaking to the tax collectors and sinners. He's not speaking to his disciples. He is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees who are grumbling all about him. So as an indirect rebuke to draw them towards God, he's addressing the Pharisees. It's our Lord's final forceful re- response to the grumbling of the Pharisees. Right. For the Pharisees, this was a humiliating exposure of their sin and their hypocrisy. It did not produce warm and fuzzy feelings for them. Maybe if Nicodemus was there, broke his heart. There were leaders who believed in Christ when they heard his parable. They were cut to the heart. Apart from fear of man, they would have outwardly expressed their faith in Christ. But most of the religious leaders, their hearts hardened like clay. It became more more cemented in their opposition to, to Christ. And they hated Christ all the more after this parable because it exposed their hypocrisy. So let's concentrate now on verses 11 through 32 and look at this parable. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son approaches his father with a simple request. But in this ancient Near East, 2,000 years ago, it's an incredible, unbelievable, shameful request. He requests half of his inheritance now. This would normally occur after the father's death. But the younger son doesn't request. He asks. He demands it now. Give me, verse 2, my share. It's not a request. It is an emphatic demand. I can't wait till you grow old and die. My life will be half over by then. I want what's coming to me now. The father graciously grants the son's request and shortly thereafter the son leaves his father, family, country and departs to a 
distant country. We know the story. Verse 13, he squanders his wealth in wild living. He wastes it. Meaning of prodigal. He throws it away. The money eventually runs out. Same time, a famine falls upon that part of the land, bringing this young man to desperate straits. The young man, verse 14, begins to be in need. So he is forced to hire himself out as a slave to a Gentile and he's assigned the worst out of all to a Jewish person. The task of caring for pigs. A detestable, unthinkable job makes him ritually unclean. Yet because of his situation, because of the famine and poverty, he has no choice. So as he cares for the pigs, verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. His pay was so so little that he longed to eat what the pigs were eating, and he was in great need. It was in this state that the young man comes to his senses. He recognizes, I could go back and be a slave to my dad. And I would not want food that pigs are eating. I will be in a better state. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven because of my shameful conduct how I dishonored you, how I humiliated you in the family, in the community, and I have sinned against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Emphasize here two aspects of the story. There is no minimizing of the seriousness of this young man's sins. Our Lord received sinners and ate with them, but He never minimized their sins. He never um, rationalized or or endorsed their sinful living. Secondly, consider the young man's repentance. Repentance is a right view of self and a right view of God. And he sees himself rightly. I have sinned. And it is God-centered. Repentance is first and foremost centered on God. I sinned against God. Against His laws. I, I violated God's commandments. I offended God. And then I offended my Father. And true repentance is humble. I am not worthy to be, to be your son. You be a preposterous pride on my part. Presumptuous pride for me to go back and expect to be uh, uh, adopted or, or welcome back to the sun again. No, I am not worthy. Complete humility. I would just be like one of the hired hands, hired servants. His repentant spirit is reflected in his deep sense of unworthiness. He does not speak of or claim any rights. Doesn't demand anything. He hopes only for mercy. There are no demands. He's appealing to his father's merciful nature, gracious character. So he begins his journey home. This brings us to the second character, the merciful father. The sheep owner, first parable. The housewife, the second parable, depicted the concern of the Pharisees for their own possessions. Right, Pharisees, you own sheep. You find one that's lost, you rejoice. Right? Your wife, she lost a day's wage and she finds it, she would rejoice. But the third character, the third parable, the father does not depict the Pharisees. The father depicts the character of the father in heaven. The father here is the one who longs for the return of the sinner. He's the one who willingly grants forgiveness. He's the one who rejoices in the return of the wayward. The father gave the son what he had asked for. He allowed the son to go his own way. Even though he could have prevented it, he could have refused to finance the venture. He 
He let him go, but the father never forgot his son. It was, it is no accident that the father, verse 20, saw the wayward son from a long distance away. Our Lord is saying the father was waiting, looking out, waiting for his son's return. Verse 20, the father saw his son. There is a great deal in that word saw. He saw who it was. He saw his dress. He saw his clothes. He saw the filth upon his hands and his feet. Saw his penitent look. It half didn't look like his son. Almost didn't recognize him. Because he went away with half his possessions, a rich man. And he was coming in rags, destitute. And it was not with icy eyes that the father looked upon his returning son. Look at verse 2. He saw him and felt compassion on him. Spurgeon said, let me just read to you what Spurgeon said, somewhat lengthy. Love leaped into his heart as he beheld his son. He had nothing but compassion for him. There was no anger in his heart toward the son. Spurgeon continues, I do not know that the prodigal saw the father, but his father saw him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim, compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before the sinner sees him. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we scarcely limp. And if we are limping toward Him, He will run towards us. The Father saw Him. And what does the Father do? He runs to Him. Depicting God runs to the repentant sinner. He does not make the sinner eat His words. Right? Makes him suffer and, and and torment at the process of repentance as soon as God the Father sees true humility and true faith. God runs to the sinner and this father ran to his son. And I would think the audience, at least half the audience was thinking, but the father ran to him and slapped him across the face, punched him out, drove him to the ground, choked him by his neck, and yelled at him, You foolish son. You're, you've shamed your father. You've shamed your family name. And you wasted all away my hard-earned uh, life savings. And you come like this. How you have brought shame upon shame to me and to our family. I would contend at least half the original Listeners expected the father to re- respond this way. But that is not how the father responded. He ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him again and again and again. These kisses were not given in a hurry, they were tender kisses warm embrace, welcoming him, eagerly welcoming, embracing him, forgiving him. Spurgeon says again, the great and amazing love of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner What a wonderful picture. Can you conceive it? I do not think you can. But if you cannot imagine it, I hope that you will realize it. When God's arm is about our neck and His lips are on our cheek, kissing us much, then we understand more than preachers or books can ever tell us of God's great and amazing love towards us. While the sun... I'm sure he had prepared this speech in his long journey home. 
said it again and again and again, and he's ready for it. He's not, didn't expect this kind of embrace, this kind of love and acceptance, and yet he spurts out, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Father said to his slaves, Bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, he's my son. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Let us rejoice. For this son of mine was dead. He has come to life again. He was lost. He has been found. And they began to be merry. They began to rejoice. When his father did this, this prodigal son knew He might not have known it before, but he knows now that his father loved him. He had no doubt about it. He had a clear perception of it. And we have a clear perception of it as well. That God loves sinners. That God loves us. Oh, the immeasurable love of God to sinners who come and cast themselves upon God's mercy. The hymn writer Wrote, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. That is a faithful description of God's love towards us. Well, the story is not over. We would think, great, happily ever after. But our Lord is not talking to disciples, teaching them about the Father. He's not talking to the sinners and tax collectors, telling them about how much the Father loves them. The purpose of this parable, parable is for the Pharisees. So we're introduced now the main character, the older son. So all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, with the, the Pharisee that lives within, all, right, all of us have a, at least a little Pharisee, not a large one in our hearts. All of us reading the story can to some degree empathize and even side with the older brother. The older brother... Uh, does not know of the younger brother's return until he hears sounds of celebration coming from the house. And he's not invited. He wasn't invited. After a hard day's work, work, he comes and he learns from a servant that his brother has returned. That the father has received him and that a celebration has been called. The mention of the killing of the fattened calf is the final straw of the older brother. He is very angry. And though the servants implore him to come and join the celebration, he is notably absent. He will not come in to celebrate. The father notices this. He comes out to meet his older son, appeals to him, come and celebrate with us. Your younger son was lost, is not found. Verse 29, the older son replied, Look, these many years I have served you, And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, what do you do? You killed the fattened calf for him? This is what made the older son so angry. Same thing that made the Pharisees angry. This is what makes all um, of those who are involved in workspace religion angry. This is what makes um, the Roman Catholics so angry. This is what makes all those who are confident in their own righteousness angry. And when we get angry, this is what makes us angry. The mercy of God. It's not fair. You're too merciful. You're too gracious. You're too loving. You are too kind. 
The older son say, says, say, saying, He dishonors you. He devoured your property. He wasted on sinful living. He comes back penniless. And what does he have to do to be welcomed back to the family? All he has to do is come back and be humble and trust you and that's all you require of him? You welcome him back and you even celebrate his return? That's not fair. I work hard. I've been loyal to you. Countless hours in in working, tireless hours working on behalf of our family. I have never neglected a command of yours. That's his perception. And yet I never get such things. And he just comes back and you celebrate his return. We see the underpinnings of all man-made religion, workspace righteousness, where they seek the reward on earth, they're concerned about their banquet on earth. In their pride, they're blind to God's authority and right, that it is God's salvation, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's righteousness that He gives, not, not ours. And in their pride, they're blind to their own sin. This older bro- brother is blind to his old sin, and the Pharisees are blind to their own, own sin if they say they've never neglected a command of God's. This is precisely why the Pharisees were angry. Jesus, you should be celebrating with us. We're the righteous ones. They are the prodigal sons. They are living in sin. So for all these years, we're living righteous lives. All these years, they're living in sin. You come and you reject us and you welcome them just because they come to you in humility, trusting in God. You welcome them without requiring them to do works of righteousness. And that angered the Pharisees. But to the true believers, this message does not anger us. It breaks our hearts. This is the sweetest message. This is the gospel of Christ that saves sinners. See, God, gospel basis of the gospel is the mercy of God. The infinite, boundless mercy of God. For the Pharisees, the mercy of God stumbled them, provoked them to anger. For them, they don't need God's mercy. For them, they are righteous because of their works. They believe all men should be judged by the law, and they are are confident if they were judged by God, they would stand. These sinners will be cast out. So they are angry at God's mercy. They don't realize that without God's mercy, they are without hope as well. Romans 3, 19-27. You would turn there. Romans 3, 20-27. Paul knows what he's talking about sought for years to establish his own righteousness and didn't need the mercy of God. He wanted to establish his own righteousness by the works of the law and he wanted everyone to do the same. And so he wanted sinners to go to hell and the righteous to go to heaven. And yet, when he received mercy, he proclaims to us this truth. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ through all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The older son, the younger son. The Pharisees, the tax collectors. The scribes, the sinners. The Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction. Every man is in need of God's mercy. For without God's mercy, no man can be saved. Through the law, no man can be justified. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, verse 24, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, no. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The Pharisees did not want to set aside their boasting in their works. The older son wanted to boast in his uh, obedience and faithfulness to his father. But no man is justified by the, by the law and there is no boasting. Only boasting in Christ. Go to the ne- next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, as his payment. So we're all workers of iniquity. So if we go to God and say, God, give us what is fair. Give us justice. Give us what we deserve. Well, because you've worked in iniquity, you've produced nothing but sin, your payment, your recompense is Judgment and the condemnation of God. Verse 5, But to the one who does not work, this is a man who comes to God not on the basis of his own work, not with the mindset that God owes him righteousness, because he has worked for it and he has earned it. This is a man, he comes not with the mentality that he is righteous by his religious works. He does not work. Meaning he comes by faith in God. He trusts not himself. He trusts not in in the law. He trusts not in his works of the law. But he hopes and trusts in God's mercy. He does not work, but trusts him, trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. You see, this man comes and he acknowledges that salvation is God's work and unless God does this work, he is completely without hope. Because, the, because it is God who justifies the ungodly. Only God can accept the ungodly. Only God has that right, that authority, that freedom. And without that, we are without hope. Only God can declare an ungodly man as righteous, as forgiven. How does God do this? God credits His faith as righteousness. His faith is counted. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. He is justified by faith alone. Promise to all who come, seeing their utter sinfulness. They see how they have dishonored the Father, shamed God by their life and conduct. And they sense their utter unworthiness, complete unworthiness to come to Him. And they do not presume upon the love and mercy of God. They come in humility and they say, I'm not worthy to be a member of the family. I'm not worthy of your attention. I just want to be a slave if I'm able to this person. His simple faith in God will be credited will be reckoned as righteousness. Turn to Philippians 3.3. Here is Paul's testimony. How appropriate. Anthony and Paul, somewhat similar, now they're pursuing their own, own righteousness, trying to establish their righteousness before God. But how God saved them. They gave up their foolish pursuit and sought God through faith in Christ. Here we see divine transaction. And Paul's description of his own testimony, the reality of Romans 3 and 4 being displayed in his life. Romans, Philippians 3, 3, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, in the works of the law. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks 
He has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. If anyone thinks he can be righteous by the works of the law, I have more confidence. I should have more confidence. Because I, I'll, I, I bet I'll, I'll do, I've outdone you in terms of accomplishments through obedience to the law. I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obeying the law, not having a righteousness from my works, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Paul was saying, I was formerly the older brother and I was coming to the Father saying, look what I have done. I was angry when God was merciful towards sinners by faith. That's why I hated Christians. That's why I hated the church. That's why I was part of the murder of Stephen. That's why I was on the road to Damascus to murder Christians and persecute them because I was angry with God that He would be so merciful, so kind, so loving. I am doing all these things to be righteous and you reckon them as righteous just by faith. It's not fair. I was kicking against the goads of God. I was fighting against God. I was angry at God. And God opened my eyes to see I was a sinner as well. That all my righteous deeds were like rubbish in the sight of God. And I too needed the same mercy and grace given to these sinners and tax collectors. So now therefore, I pursue Christ. Not to establish my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, friends, it's either or. It's not both and. It's either or. It's, they're mutually exclusive. Either you are sitting with the Pharisees and you're angry at God because you feel you don't need God's mercy. You, you've earned God's favor. You work hard. You're a righteous moral person. And what is just is for God to, to, to give out, mete out judgment to those who are disobedient to the law and you are angry at God's mercy or you are sitting with the prostitutes, the drunkards, the profane, the ungodly, the adulterers, the homosexuals and you are thanking God for His mercy. It's either or. i read to you John Bunyan's testimony of God, how God opened his eyes to this gospel of God's grace. Bunyan is the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He loved the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He lived it out in his life. He shares his salvation testimony in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chiefs of Sinners. Listen to what Pastor Bunyan has to say. I was all this while ignorant of Jesus Christ and going about to establish my own righteousness. And I would have perished therein, had not God in mercy shown me more of my state by nature. One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. The righteousness of God is in heaven. And I thought, and I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there, I say, was my righteousness, so that whatever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, you are lacking righteousness. You are falling short. For my righteousness is safe and secure right next to Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. 
For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. And Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. All because of God's infinite mercy. What about you today? Are you sitting with the Pharisees or the tax collectors? Do you come to God on basis of your own moral code, moral righteousness? Or do you come none better than the prodigal son, far worse, since your utter unworthiness before God? And you come trusting in God, hoping in God's mercy and grace. How do you pursue your Christian life? Is your righteousness, is your Christian life dependent upon the day or the week or the month? Where your righteousness grows if you're obedient to Christ and your righteousness decreases if you're disobedient? Or do you continue to live the Christian faith by Christian faith by faith in Christ. That our righteousness is not because I'm earning it. I'm working at it. My positional righteousness is kept safe and secure because Christ is my righteousness. He has done the work. As we uh, spend this Father's Day, let's consider our Father in Heaven and His mercy towards you, and His mercy towards others. Search our hearts. Do we find anger? Do we find prideful boasting? Do we find uh, self-righteousness? Or do we find an increasing measure of just humility? Thanking God for His grace and mercy. Lord, by giving this parable to the hearers 2,000 years ago, to the Pharisees and scribes gathered, gathered around him, by this parable he was calling them to repent. He was calling them to see how their lack of joy was just a glaring uh, reflection, glaring evidence of their hypocrisy and pride, and their utter lostness. They viewed these sinners and tax collectors as being separate from God, but they were the ones who were separate from God. They were the ones, because of their pride, had turned away from the living God, the God of mercy. They are the ones that have no right to tell God who He should be merciful to and who He should forgive and who He should love. They were stepping over bounds allotted to them as sinful men. Well, that is the same today. Lord, I know that through the scriptures you're calling out the souls here today. Those who are still seeking to establish their own righteousness. Those who are trying to tell you how you ought to dispense your grace and mercy and salvation to others. Lord, we pray that you would um, open their eyes and humble their hearts and cause their ears to hear this glorious gospel of grace that we are all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God and we are all desperately in need of your mercy for without your mercy, each one of us without hope. And Lord, I pray for believers here who are still striving, not in the right way, not in the right manner, those believers who are striving in a manner inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. We have been saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace 
and will be glorified by grace. It is all by your grace through faith alone in Christ. May our uh, pursuit of you not be motivated by pride as if righteousness is earned through works of the law. Righteousness was given to us by faith and practical righteousness will be granted to us by faith as well. Lord, help believers to rest in Christ, to stop working and to trust in Christ for our sanctification, for our Christian lives, for our families, for our our friends, for our lives, for the whole Christian life. May we continue to place our trust in your mercy and graciousness of God. We thank you, Lord, for this um, wonderful truth, for these wonderful truths of Luke 15. May it be uh, heavy in our hearts this whole week, causing us to praise and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.